As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show and our latest edition of Listener Questions. Every week we dedicate a pod to the questions you send us at totalsoccershow.com slash questions. And here we are with another warm bat straight out of the internet oven. Mm. My name's Ryan Bailey and joining me today is a man who slaps harder than Will Smith at an Oscar ceremony and who doesn't use lazy intro references like Will Smith slapping at an Oscar ceremony. Hello, Graham Rubin. <laughs> Hello, Ryan Bailey. I knew there was going to be a Will Smith reference right at the top of the show. Um, that that actually happened just as I was winding down from the, the Bleach Report um, live show after the, the USMNT game against Panama on Sunday night. And as anyone who watched that show would know, that that was very late for me. That was about half three in the morning. And I felt like I was hallucinating or something. I, I, I was like, did that actually happen? I never watched the Oscars and I just turned it on for 10 minutes and caught and caught that happening. It it was a very, very <laughs> weird moment that's somehow forever going to be entwined with that uh, Bleach Report live show and talking about the USMNT nearly qualifying for the World Cup as they did on Sunday night. So you went to bed with dreams of Will Smith slapping people and uh, US qualifying or holding up a banner saying they're qualifying at the very least, Graham. <laughs> that's right, yeah. Yeah, that, 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 that banner needed an asterisk. Uh, nearly. We're nearly there. On goal difference, we are probably qualified. Yes, we are going to Qatar. Yeah, it's all happening. It's all good. And you may notice, listener, a very British feeling to this listener question. It's just Graham and I today as uh, Joe and Taylor are recovering from their celebrations. Yeah. I think, were they doing keg stands? I think that's what they said they were doing, right? <laughs> yeah, I think actually uh, they're both preparing to play it right back for the USMNT ah. against uh, Costa Rica. You know, they, they're, they're going through a lot of right backs at the moment. Des, <laughs> Yedlin, Shaq Moore. I, I'm pretty sure Taylor is getting a shot at right back at least and then Joe coming on for the second half as well. I reckon Taylor could be a pretty good right back. Like if someone, you know, there's a winger sprinting down the left wing, I can think, I can imagine Taylor running in and sort of chopping him down. Yeah, uh, dramatically. I, I think he'd be. I think he'd be quite uh, kind of like old-fashioned right back, like a full back rather than like a, a wing back. Right. But uh, yeah, I think he uh, he'd do that job pretty well. He'd <laughs> shut down the Costa Rican uh, left wing pretty effectively. I think he would indeed. By the way, Graham, what's the equivalent of Will Smith slapping Chris Rock in soccer? Is it Ronaldo slapping Messi? I can't quite. I need to make um, a. 
I don't think there is an, there is an equivalent. Maybe like Mourinho poking Tito Villanova in the eye is oh, is, is is maybe one that springs that to mind, or Zidane headbutting Marco Materazzi. That was the comparison I drew with a pal was because, as I say, I I never watched the Oscars. I'm not sure I've ever watched the Oscars live. Um, but it's like n- someone never watching a World Cup final and then turning it on for five minutes and and seeing Zidane headbutt Marco Materazzi. Yeah, that's kind of how it felt. <laughs> I saw in the news yesterday, Graham, uh, Louis van Gaal trying to talk Eric Ten Hag out of taking the Man United job. So maybe the equivalent is like Ed Woodward slapping Louis van Gaal for trying to talk him out of that job. <laughs> you take my club's name out of your mouth, that kind of thing. I think maybe yeah, that's I, it. I don't think anyone can take Manchester United at the name of uh, Louis van Gaal's mouth at the moment. He seems to be shooting that mouth off quite a bit about everything from the Qatar World Cup to I saw today he was having a go at the Europa Conference League, which he called the Frickin' Frack League. <laughs> um, and now he's, talk- he's talking about Manchester United and how Ten Hag shouldn't work for that quote commercial club. Yeah, he's he has uh, he's let loose Louis Van Hal, and he was never he was never that uh, he was he's always been pretty loose throughout his career. But even by those usual standards, he's the old guy in the corner of the bar giving you his um, unsolicited opinions, isn't he? That's what Louis Van Hal's become. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah, and <laughs> and uh, diving down on the ground to to uh, demonstrate an opposition player diving, oh. as he did on the, famously on the Old Trafford touchline that one time. Career highlight, Graham. Career highlight. Uh, why don't we get to our listener questions, which were very much solicited to us, Graham? Let's start off with a doozy from Joss Richards. If you could take a number nine from any CONCACAF country that did not make the octagonal round and add him to the USMNT, who would that be? And would that player solve the US striker problem? Her boy, Graham. This is quite a question here because uh, of the stipulation that Josh makes that they did not make the Ocho round uh, for this player we're trying to select as a number nine. I have one. May I take what? May I take first lead, Graham? Would you mind? On you go. Lyle Taylor, or to use okay. his full name, Lyle Taylor Baby, who um, is wow. a legend in my eyes. He got AFC Wimbledon promoted to League One in 2016. He scored. Ah, uh, there it is. Tw- there, I knew, you knew I'd make the link. He scored 23 <laughs> goals. Uh, he scored in in that season, 2015-16, and got us. Uh, he scored a goal in the League One playoff final as well. Uh, lots of uh, experience in the English leagues. Played at Charlton and Nottingham Forest. He's now on loan at Birmingham. He plays for Montserrat because of his grandparents, through his parentage, through his grandparents, and he had five goals in CONCACAF qualification, Graham. Um, he, uh, he got a couple, a brace in the first and last games of Montserrat's games. He got an 89th minute equaliser against El Salvador. El Salvador narrowly finishing above Montserrat in the first round of qualification. So I am setting my stool out at Lyle Taylor because he has decent high-ish level experience. And from the pool <laughs> of players we're picking from, Graham, he was about the best I could find. Yeah, so Lyle, Lyle Taylor was on was on my list as well, and I think that is a very very good shout with the the limited options that we have. Another couple options would be uh, Nigel Hasselbank, who I know from when he used to play in Scotland for Hamilton Ackies and St Johnston. He scored six goals for Suriname in the first round of Concacaf qualifying in this World Cup qualification cycle. Um, so maybe he would be a contender, perhaps. Um, I have to say, outside the Ocho, it is, it is slim pickings. Uh, <laughs> there aren't many high-level options. Uh, another name would be Mikhail Biron, a player that I have to admit I hadn't heard of before, but he is a centre-forward who plays for Martinique. Now, I'm, che- I'm cheating a little bit there because Martinique aren't FIFA members. They can't qualify for the World Cup, so they didn't take part in CONCACAF qualifying. How- they are, however, CONCACAF members. They competed in the Gold Cup 
last summer. So by the question, I'm still picking from CONCACAF and they were, they're not in the, the octagonal. So it still works, Ryan Bailey. It still works. But uh, uh, Biron, he plays for Nancy in League in uh, League 2. I was going to call it League 2 there, but no, League 2 in France. And he's doing well there. He's got seven goals, which makes him one of the top goal scorers in that division. Nancy are bottom of that division. So it's not going all that well for him this season. But he is on loan from Ostend in, in the Belgian top flight. So there's a good chance he goes back there and is part of that squad next season. However, all these players that we've suggested, uh, I would say, are not above the quality of what the US have <laughs> in, in terms of Ricardo Pepe. I know I know the US look at that position as a, as a weak link, and it is a bit of a weak link, and they're not entirely sure who's going to play in that position for the World Cup, but Ricardo Pepe's in the Bundesliga. Jesus Ferreira is doing the job in that team in MLS. Jordan Peefock scoring loads of goals in Switzerland. Jesse Zardes, Miguel Berry, they're, they're all better options than the, the players we have mentioned if we're not allowed to pick from the octagonal. Devil's advocate, Graham. I'll, I'll give you the name Rangelo Janga, who plays for Curacao. Uh, he was born in Rotterdam, you know, but he plays. Uh, he's got Curacao in descent. It's a Dutch island. He scored twice in second round qualification. He played. He has played for a load of Dutch teams, Willem Zwee, Excelsior. He's in Greece at the moment. He has three goals on this season, Graham. How many does Pepe have at Augsburg? Uh, at Augsburg, uh, I think that's a big fat zero. Huh. So, just saying. I, I, no, I'm, be, I'm being a bit facetious there because I think we, we can conclude from Josh, Josh's question whether any of these players would solve the US striker problem. They probably wouldn't, given the no. level they are at. But what if we expanded the question, Graham? What would solve the problem? What if we expanded it to players, uh, CONCACAF players, who are in the Ocho in the octagonal round with the USMNT? What if, say, Jonathan David was uh, in the US setup? Born in Brooklyn, after all, US dual citizen. Yep. What do you think? Yes, I think he starts for 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 the US ahead of all the the options that that, that they've got. I I am um, I'm a little bit cloudy on his numbers, but so, uh, did I read that he scored maybe thirteen goals in in the the whole qualification campaign for Canada, which is absolutely incredible. And by the way, congratulations to Canada on qualifying for their first World Cup since 1986. I'm genuinely quite excited about that. A new team, certainly in my lifetime, a new team going to be at the the Qatar World Cup. So I'm yeah. very interested to see how they do they are a, they are a good team they've it looks like they're going to finish quali- uh, top of the the octagonal obviously the, the US and Mexico still have games to play but they are they are a very good team and i think they could do well at the world cup and Jonathan David has been a massive part of that team and I'll, i would also put forward Kyle Lahren as well yeah. as someone who would probably i don't think he's good as good as Jonathan David but um he would probably start for the for the US as well and if we're sticking in the as a nine the, the, as as a uh, Yes, I would say so. I think so. Yeah. Um, and if we're sticking on the octagonal, a couple other names. Uh, Mikel Antonio, of course, who uh, oh, plays for yeah. Jamaica. And then maybe the obvious one looking to Mexico would be uh, Raul Jimenez, um, mm. who is obviously a proven Premier League goal scorer, obviously has had his injury troubles, but is once again playing in a very good Wolves team. So I think he would start as well at centre forward for, for the US if he was eligible for them, Indeed. which he's not, which is a shame. It is a shame indeed. And just uh, clarifications on Jonathan David. I think nine goals in CONCAF qualifications, right. my notes say 13 goals for Lille this season. Ah, that's where I I've got confused. Yes, got he is He is very good in front of goal and would absolutely be top of the, the depth pool for the US if he had picked the country of his birth, uh, which he has not. And look, he's pro- he's justified in doing that because Canada at the moment are probably better than the <laughs> USMT as the Ocho table suggests. 
Goodness, you said that out loud. Okay, great, great. <laughs> Let's move on to the next question, shall we? Thank you very much, Josh, for that one. This is slightly less taxing for us, I think, Graham, from Doug Soholt. Uh, Christian Pulisic scores some big goals, but is awful at celebrating them. Which great goal scorers have been this poor at celebrating and which occasional scorers have great celebrations? And Doug says Wes Morgan comes to mind there, which is a great shout. Uh, before we get to the names, Graham, do you agree that he's awful at celebrating his goals? Um, generally, yes. I mean, he had the, the man in the mirror uh, shirt uh, message after that goal in, in qualification. That, mm. that, was a, that was a nice moment. I think what might be referenced here in the question is is his terrible, terrible worm uh, after scoring his hat trick <laughs> against Panama at the weekend. It was very bad. Yeah. The context for that is that he uh, he met a, a, a child at, at training before that game, a, a cancer fighter, and and that child asked him to to perform the worm if he scored a goal in the game. So. There is a reason for it, some context to it, and fair play to Christian Pulisic. That was that was a, a nice gesture in that moment. But yeah, he might have wanted to practice his worm before <laughs> before cracking that out on uh, on the pitch in Orlando on on Sunday night. But I, I think some other players with uh, terrible celebrations. So for for me, the worst of the lot is Cristiano Ronaldo. I cannot stand the. I don't even know how to say it. The Sue celebration or whatever that is. Yeah. Do you know what it reminds me of? You know, when you're young, about 12 years old, and you start signing your name for the first time and you add all these little unnecessary flourishes and stuff because you think that's what a signature is. And rather than just signing <laughs> your name normally, there's squiggles and everything like that. Well, Ronaldo's celebration is a bit like that 12 year old signature. There's a leap. There's a weird little, I don't know if anyone has ever noticed, there's a weird little sort of hand wiggle in the air while as he's jumping up. And then there's the turn and the stance and the shout. It's like, choose choose one of those things, dude. Like, don't mash them all together. And it's just, it's just, it's just a mess. And Sue doesn't even mean anything. I, I assumed it meant something in Portuguese or Spanish or there was some sort of reference there. No, it is just a random sound that he has. It's very difficult to say as well. There's nothing good about it. You might you might be able to, to guess I'm not a fan of this celebration at all. All right, all right. I'll let you sit down and um, take your breath for a second there, Graham. Um, in, in terms of the Pulisic awful celebrating canon, can we put Luke Ayling in there for a few weeks ago trying yeah. that cartwheel against Wolves? So- well, the thing is, I I actually had him in my occasional goal scorers with a good celebration because that celebration was so bad that I enjoyed it. So Luke Ayling is getting a mention for, mention for actually having a great celebration because, as I say, so bad it was good. All right, I'm going to go for some good, great goal scorers who are poor at celebrating, Graham. The first one that came to mind as soon as I saw this question was Alan Shearer, uh, the Premier yeah. League record goal scorer, 260 goals for... I'm going to say that all 260, he did the exact same celebration, running away from goal with one fist in the air. It's simple. It's understated, Graham, but I mean, come on. (laughs) The weird thing about this celebration while on Shearer is his his trademark, if you can call it that, because it was so boring, you're right, was kind of like an open palm. But his his, uh, statue at Newcastle, I'm led to believe, is with one finger. One finger, yeah. So I'm like, they didn't even get his celebration right when they made his statue. I don't really, I don't really understand that one. But yeah, it's with one finger. Weird. Yeah, maybe he trademarked the open hand, and they could only use the one finger on his statue. <laughs> yeah, and like Mike Ashley wasn't willing is. to. 
Mike Ashley was like, well, I'm not paying for that, trademark. <laughs> one Maybe finger so. will have to do <laughs> The other one I thought of, Graham, was Arjun Robin, um, who... All right. Do you remember, it was 2015, I looked at the game, there was a 2-2 win over Eintracht Braunschweig, where he did a knee slide, and he often did a knee slide. But this particular one, the ground was quite frozen, <laughs> and he tried to slide and immediately fell over and burned holes in his socks. He slid so violently <laughs> on the rough, frozen tundra beneath him. Yeah. I mean, I don't remember that one specifically, but it sounds funny. And uh, <laughs> soccer celebrations... That, uh, the history of soccer celebration is littered with examples of players who have misjudged the consistency of the pitch beneath them and have been made to look foolish with a knee slide or, <laughs> or something like that. And how about if I'm going to stick with Bayern Munich, it's just occurred to me, Thomas Muller doesn't usually do, just like a little fist bump, maybe? some. Yeah, or he does kind of like a big scream, you know, with like both fists clenched and just mm. like a big a big shout. It's a, bit, it's a bit of a strange one. Kieran Tierney has, uh, I mean, he's not a, he's not a, a regular goal scorer by any stretch just scored his first Scotland goal the other day but he he his celebrations are weird in that he he literally doesn't celebrate he like turns back and just runs to the other like back to, into his own half ready for kickoff he's always <laughs> done that it's really really weird that's my that's my uh, rec soccer uh, attitude as well I don't celebrate run straight back sometimes pick up the ball and run straight back if we're losing always seems the uh, best way to do it uh, one more great or a, a big goal scorer prolific if you will in his time Mario Balotelli Graham who had had literally like a meme come out of one of his celebrations at the Euros. You remember the shirt off and he was sort of tensing. But aside yeah. from that one, he didn't really celebrate very much at all. And it quite often was very like, no, don't come near me. I'm, I'm not celebrating kind of thing. And he had a quote, when I score, I don't celebrate because I'm only doing my job. When a postman delivers letters, does he celebrate? <laughs> I mean, it's not quite an equivalence there, Mario. No. Is it? No, and speak for yourself, Mario. I mean, my my postman celebrates. He does, he does the... a knee slide outside my door. <laughs> do you know he's Do you know he's arrived? Because you hear "shoo" outside your door. <laughs> yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah, that, Mario Balotelli, I guess, did the the "Why Always Me" with his with shirt over his head in the yeah. Manchester derby. But he just kind of stands there and and allows the message to speak for itself the context there is the night before i think balotelli had let off some fireworks from his bathroom which is the <laughs> ideal preparation for a manchester derby I've, I've heard that before i tend to find that um graham have you got any occasional scorers we mentioned you luke ailing perhaps in his category but occasional scorers with great celebrations aside from luke ailing and wes morgan we've heard of as well anyone else uh, not really. So Luke Ayling was actually on on my list, and then I I, I had I had Kieran Tierney as well. Um, not necessarily a great celebration by any stretch, but a notable celebration where he doesn't doesn't celebrate. Um, mm. If we're going back to the first part of the question, I have to mention as well Harry Kane, who is in, in a similar vein to Alan Shearer of just doesn't really do anything at all. The wee he does like a wee hop and a fist pump, and it's just so half hearted. And I've, and I've seen him before do this sort of slide on his on his backside across along the grass which is which is very weird um but yeah for someone who's scored so many goals over the course of his career it's weird that he doesn't really have any way of celebrating them at all yeah i think for an occasional goal scorer graham this might be showing my age here but the one that really stands out to me was sol campbell at world cup 98 against argentina england versus argentina the game where david beckham was sent off for kicking was it pochettino or was it Cholo? who it was uh, Simeone. It was Simeone that time, wasn't it? Yeah. But they were both playing in that game, I believe. Uh, and Michael Owen scored that career-defining solo goal back in the summer of 98. Yep. And Sol Campbell thought he'd won the game in injury time with a header from a corner. And I don't think I've ever seen a look of 
joy and relief on anybody's face as much as Sol Gamble when he was reeling away from that goal. It was it was just screaming yes and sort of pumping his fist, but it was so, it was so so visceral. And then of course it was flagged, so <laughs> the kid didn't count. So that gutted. was uh, yeah, absolutely gutted for him in that moment. Um, one of the greatest celebrations for me, Graham, certainly in Premier League history, Festino Esprit at Newcastle. Once again, I'm going to show my age. Um, there was a game in the late 90s against Mets in the UEFA Cup pre-Europa League uh, about 25 years ago now, where I think he did this a couple of times, where Tino Esprit was a, a um, South American forward who came to Newcastle when Newcastle were good, when they were competing. He was part of that side. fun team, wasn't he, exactly. that Kevin Keegan had? Very much so, yes. And one of his celebrations, which he certainly did in this game, and he, I think he did it in a few others, was to pull his shirt off, place it on the corner flag, pick up the corner flag, and then sort of <laughs> parade it around like a like a Trump supporter with a tiki torch, basically. It was uh, it was quite wonderful. And he got he always got booked for it, but he always kept doing it. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. Um, and one one more thing I have to mention in this category, Graham. It's not specifically related to Doug's question, but players who don't celebrate against former clubs. This bothers me. Yeah, we've seen people like Mo Salah do it when he, I think he hasn't celebrated against Chelsea and Roma and so on. The one that got me was Anton Griezmann in 2018. Uh, was it 2018? Yes, the 2018 World Cup when he didn't celebrate against Uruguay. Not because he he used to be Uruguayan, <laughs> but because some of his teammates are Uruguayan. Yeah, that was the reason. That's so weird about Griezmann how badly he wants to be Uruguayan. It's it's <laughs> peculiar. There was actually a recent one, not quite as bad as the Griezmann one. I have to say that is the worst one of all time. But Jadon Sancho not celebrating scoring against Manchester City, despite the fact he never made a senior appearance for Manchester City. Mm. He left City because they weren't giving him an opportunity. They went to he went to Dortmund to get those opportunities. Comes back, scores for Manchester United against them, and then doesn't celebrate out of respect. I would be rubbing their faces in it. <laughs> <laughs> he's classier than both of us, I guess. Or maybe he's not. I don't know. I'm not sure about that, Graham. <laughs> anyway, that's a great question. Thank you very much, Doug, for that one. A few more coming after this short break. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions. Let's get straight into one from Daniel N. When a player goes on international duty, who pays for the flights for the players? Is it commercial or private? Smaller federations will seem to have a more difficult time financially, if needed, to fly players in from all over the world. It's a really good question um, from Daniel here, Graham, yep. and something you maybe not always think about. I have found some things from some people. I'll let you uh, kick the ball, get the ball rolling, kicking, rolling. <laughs> Well, the first thing is maybe we have found the reason why uh, Scotland aren't calling up Ryan Gold and Johnny Russell from uh, from MLS, is that mm. they just don't want to pay for the flights. They want PJs. For them. They demanded PJs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they they wanted one of those beds 
uh, the, the planes with the beds. And they were like, no, not paying for that economy or nothing. Um, as far as I could find, there isn't a rule per se about this. There is, however, a recommendation made by FIFA. And those recommendations are, and I'm just going to read them out word for word as they appear on FIFA.com. So those recommendations are, A, the visiting association shall cover its delegation's own international travel costs to the venue or the nearest airport, as well as board lodging costs and incidental expenses. B, the host association shall cover domestic transport uh, costs for the entire official delegation of the visiting team, depending on flight connections. And C, the host association shall pay for boarding lodging in a high standard hotel and domestic travel, uh, domestic transport in the host country for the match officials, the FIFA match commissioner, the referee assessor, and any other FIFA officials, which may include a security officer or a media officer, etc. So that is what I could find on FIFA.com, which was news to me. Uh, I had not really thought of this before. Who pays that? The, 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 the travel for games. Mm. One thing I'd say is it's not uncommon for clubs to fly players on private flights to get them back quicker from Correct. international duty. So most recently, Celtic did this for a player, a striker called Daizan Maeda, a Japanese striker. There was an old firm derby on the Saturday. He was playing on the Wednesday and Celtic um, chartered a flight for him to get back to that for that game quicker. And I have a feeling, as much as I don't have confirmation of this, I have a feeling that Edward Mendy and Mohamed Salah may have paid for their own flight, their own chartered flight to AFCON this year after the Carabao Cup final. People might remember there was a picture of them on a private jet um, off to Cameroon for that tournament. The reason I, th- I suspect they may have paid for that themselves is which club pays for that because obviously they pay for they play for two different clubs and mm. also they play for two different nations. So which federation play- pays for that as well? And of course... They're they're both earning a pretty penny in the Premier League, so uh, they could likely afford that flight. So my suspicion is they paid for that. Right. So uh, from the research I found, Graham, you're, you're you're spot on. Generally, the national federation will pay for uh, flights and travel, um, but teams and sometimes players can put on private jets if they want to, if the circumstances warrant it. And as you say, I I found pictures of Mane and Salah sharing a jet home from AFCON, so Mane and Salah together, but it was Mane and Edouard Mendy I saw sharing a jet out. Maybe Salah was on there as well. That's right. It was was Mane and and Mendy. I got that wrong. It wasn't Salah. Um, And I think we've seen before Liverpool, when um, they're Brazilians, like when uh, Firmino and Alisson and Fabinho uh, are on Brazilian duty, they'll often put a PJ on to get them back quicker from South America. Um, but I actually got a little bit more detail, Graham. I went and did some hashtag research, hashtag journalism. Um, <laughs> I spoke to Sam Stapleton, who is an agent. He was the MD of Rock Nation Sports, JC's um, sports label. Oh, yeah. He's now got an agency of his own. He said to me that the country will pay and they'll normally fly players business class rather than the private jet. And I quote, sometimes a country may pay for a jet if timings are a real issue, or sometimes a club may pay for a jet to get the player back in time for a game, which is kind of what we said there. I back this up, Graham, with further research, hashtag journalism. I spoke to Zoran Cronetta, the sporting director of Charlotte FC, who confirmed it's all paid for by the national team, private jets for big stars, or if the big team has several players on the same national team, let's say the Brazilian team, which he's, he's referring to the, the Liverpool example there, then sometimes the big team can arrange for private jets. So there you go. It kind of depends on your status and depends on timing. If, if your club wants you back for a certain game, then they will splash out on getting a tiny plane on the tarmac for you, basically, Graham. Yeah. 
it makes it makes you think that if ever there was kind of like a a prodigious Fiji talent making it big in Spain or uh, Germany or the Premier League, and everyone in Fiji is is very very excited about this this superstar who's going to play for Fiji and wow how good is that going to be? And then their national association is just thinking of all the the flight costs that that's gonna that's gonna cost them, and maybe they're maybe they're not so excited about that prospect. <laughs> I remember a time, Graham. Maybe I remember this incorrectly, but when Jurgen Klinsmann was working with the Germany setup, but living in California. Mm-hmm. I wonder who was paying for his fl- I'm assuming the DFB was paying for his flights and that would have been well, a pretty penny yeah he might have been just coaching over Zoom and or Skype to be fair <laughs> remote working <laughs> sending text messages to the coaches maybe it was something like that yeah to keep it cheap yeah <laughs> alright thank you very much for that one we're going to move on to another question here from Sam Thorpe hello Sam as, a, as an American who lived in Scotland for a bit, I'm curious to know what Scotland's path to World Cup qualification currently looked like. They were scheduled to play Ukraine on the final round of qualification, but things seem to have been put a, putting a pause on that kind of thing, uh, says Sam. I've ineloquently read that out, but he says war sucks, wishing peace and prosperity to the people of Ukraine. Um, Sam, my condolences for the fact that you had to live in Scotland for a little bit, but Graham, what do you <laughs> think about this one? So, uh, yeah, so Scotland finished second in their World Cup qualification group behind Denmark. That put us into the playoffs where we were seeded for the playoffs along with Portugal, Italy, uh, Russia, Sweden and Wales. That's, that seeding gave us a good chance of a, a favourable route and we drew Ukraine in the semi-finals as Sam references there. The winner of that match will face uh, Wales or uh, Austria in the other semi-final in this section and we now know that it's uh, it's Wales waiting in the final. They beat Austria 2-1 last week. Gareth Bale scoring both goals, as he tends to do for Wales, not so much for Real Madrid. Anyway, um, so after the, the invasion of Ukraine, uh, Russia were kicked out of qualifying, um, and it was obviously unreasonable to expect Ukraine to, to play their game. And so Scotland's playoff against them uh, was postponed. It was meant to be played last Thursday. This is where things get a little bit uncertain. As things stand, that game is scheduled very loosely for June, which is the next international window when Scotland already have four Nation leagues, uh, Nations League games scheduled for. So I don't know quite how that's going to work because if Scotland beat Ukraine, make the final against Wales, then that is six games in one international window. So I assume some Nations League games would have to be pushed back. However, Steve Clark, Scotland manager, was speaking last week about how he isn't hopeful that that game is, is going to happen in June. Um, and I think his comments reflect the sentiment of the National Association as well. And just generally people who are uh, keeping up to date with what is happening in Ukraine because it doesn't feel like that situation is going to be resolved by June. Um, so then you end up in a really difficult situation where there is a window in September where you could play those games but are we really going to be playing qualifiers that close to the tournament itself keep in mind that the world cup kicks off in november and there are logistical concerns for teams like booking training bases and also for fans you know it's already difficult enough for Mm. fans to find accommodation in qatar and to actually get over there for the tournament it's probably the most inaccessible uh, world cup finals there has there's ever been in history and that there's not many hotel rooms not many direct flights either so are we really going to play those qualifiers in september when fans will not really be able to get over to qatar in time it's it's a very difficult situation and obviously one that 
extends and transcends beyond soccer. It's not the the biggest consideration at this time, but it, yeah. it, it is a, a little bit of a mess and I, I don't really know what's going to happen. I do actually personally have tickets for that Scotland-Ukraine game, which is kind of a once-in-a-generation match here in Scotland. We haven't had a playoff match at home at, at Hamden like that for about 20 years, um, since the late 90s or the early 2000s. So um, from a selfish point of view and also from a point of view of if that game happens, then maybe things are slightly better in Ukraine. So that would be an indicator. I, I really do hope that match that match happens. But at this moment in time, I really don't know if it's going to happen or when it's going to happen. So, Graham, I, I'm going to put you in the unfortunate position of playing this one out if it doesn't happen, if, if, uh, if Ukraine uh, is still in the situation it's currently in. Do you think that means Scotland get a buy or like the Ukraine get a buy? How how would they even fairly decide that? I can't yeah. even figure it out. Yes, it's it's an unprecedented situation. Um, if I had to guess, and I don't have any inside information, I I I think maybe FIFA and UEFA are they're maybe hoping Ukraine withdraw because obviously it's it's unfair for. Scotland, the Scottish FA and Scot- the, the Scottish FA have been really, really accommodating. They've said, look, Ukraine, whenever you can play this game, we're ready to play it. Mm-hmm. Um, don't worry about that. FIFA have also been pretty accommodating as well. Similar sort of sentiment. Whenever you can play, we'll play that game. But I do think uh, in private conversations in FIFA, they're, they're probably hoping that Ukraine withdraw, which kind of solves that problem. And then I guess Scotland get a, get a buy through to that that final against uh, against Wales. There's been some... I, I think silly suggestions of Ukraine just being given a spot in the World Cup, in which case you would have 33 teams, and I'm not entirely sure how that works with the structure of the tournament. Um, but it is an unprecedented situation, so it feels like nothing is, is fully off the table at this point. Very difficult situation indeed, Graham. You went to the friendly that was played in its place of the Scotland-Ukraine game, didn't you? It was against Poland last week. How, did, how yeah. was that? Was there a lot of support for Ukraine at that game? Yeah, that absolutely there was. So obviously, Poland as a, a, a neighbouring nation of Ukraine have uh, provided a lot of support to Ukraine in terms of uh, asylum and and taking in a number of refugees and and so on. And Poland actually, um, I don't know if, if people know this, but there's a, there's a huge Polish population in Scotland dating back to well, there's a huge po- Polish population in the UK in general, but in particular, there seems to be a big population in, in Scotland from when Poland joined the EU in the the early 2000s. A lot of Polish people came over for for job prospects, um, and so there was a there was about ten thousand Polish fans at Hamden for a, for a friendly. So it was a it was a really good atmosphere, and Scots and Poles tend to tend to get on uh, pretty well together so it was there was like a Polish end of the stadium but there was also loads of Polish fans mixed in throughout the Scotland fans as well I was sitting next to the Polish fans and we we're having a good laugh with them so it was it was a really good atmosphere actually and both teams kind of played well ended in a, in a 1-1 draw and plenty of Ukrainian flags and lots of support and a, a, the, the the proceeds the profit from the game everything from the programs to the pies to the match tickets itself and all the merchandise all the profit went to unicef to help uh, to help people in ukraine and people leaving ukraine and so on seeking refuge so yeah it was obviously pretty depressing circumstances when you think about it but actually there in the moment it was quite a, a jovial and uplifting atmosphere that's good to hear that's good to hear one final question on this uh, subject before we move on graham scotland let's say scotland do get through through one means or another and it's wales in that next game, and you got to face Gareth, a very well rested Gareth Bale. Uh, yeah. How does that play out for you? Uh, I tweeted about this, so I, I, I honestly think Scotland as a whole have a better team unit than Wales. If I go through from front to back, I do think Scotland are stronger. 
but we don't have a player like Gareth Bale mm-hmm. <laughs> who can just seemingly turn it on uh, at, at, at a switch as he did against uh, Austria with two amazing goals. But in particular, that free kick was just ridiculous against against Austria. So, yes, he gives me the fear, I have to say. Um, I, I don't quite know how we stop him. I hope he would play on the right side because then obviously that's Scotland's left side is the the strongest and actually one of the strongest left sides in all of international football. So I hope he plays on the right. We might have a better chance of stopping him. But yeah, I think Bale does give me the fear, absolutely. I I, I do hope that game happens because I think it would be an an interesting match. I'm not entirely sure who of the... I say Scotland are the stronger team, but I'm not 100% about that. And obviously Wales will have home advantage. I think it would be a uh, a pretty good game. Indeed, indeed. So thanks, Sam. Thank you very much for the question. Unfortunately, we don't quite know what that path to World Cup qualification looks like for either uh, Scotland or Ukraine. But hopefully we find out in due course. Hopefully things um, are politically more stable to allow that to play out. We're going to take a very quick break now. When we're back, a few more questions from y'all. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to Listen to Questions. Raghav Gupta has got in touch and asks, would Barcelona be in the title race if Xavi was appointed at the start of the season? I'm going to lay some stats on you now, Graham Rudfin. Uh, without Xavi at the start of the season, uh, four wins, four draws, three losses. That's 17 points dropped from 12 games. With Xavi, 11 wins, five draws, one loss. Only 13 points dropped from 17 games. So five extra games, four fewer points dropped. Uh, you look at this Barcelona team, they are 12 points off the title, 12 points off Real Madrid, I should say, with a game in hand. So we can call that nine points, perhaps. I think the answer to Ragav's question is yes. Um, Barcelona would be in the title race, from my perspective, from those numbers alone. And I will also perhaps argue, Graham, they're not quite out of it as it stands. No, they're not. And um, that, that classical win over Real Madrid, that, that dominant victory at, at the Bernabeu before the, the international break, kind of closed up the gap to, I think it's 12 points now. Um, and I believe Barcelona have a game in hand Correct. as well. Is that, is that right? So if they win that game in hand, that's, that's obviously nine points. You would think Real Madrid would have enough in the tank to get over the line with a, with a nine-point advantage. But you never know. Barcelona are really rolling at the moment. And that win... At the Bernabeu, um, I saw Musa Kwongo on on uh, the Ringer FC podcast. He described it as it was like the the moment the Death Star is fully operational, <laughs> um, and that that sums it up perfectly. We'd seen Barcelona play well up until then. Players had been had been uh, finding individual form, but that was the game that everything came together, and you go, okay, right, this this team's good now, and um, obviously we'll never really know. 
if they'd be in the title race because there would have been a transition period because there was a transition period when Xavi first came in. Barcelona were struggling for goals in his first few games. They drew a blank in their first four games. Eh, sorry, two of their first four games under under Xavi. So I think that period would have still been there, that, that period of transition. However, it would have been much earlier in the season and Barcelona wouldn't have wasted a couple months going nowhere with, with Komen in charge. And to throw another... Uh, statistic at the wall here. Since Xavi was hired, Barcelona have 37 La Liga points. Real Madrid have 36 La Liga points. Mm. So on that basis, you would have to say, um, yes, there probably would be a title race. Put it this way, there would certainly be more chance of a title race if Xavi had started the season with Barcelona than Coman and Xavi coming in midway through. Definitely so. And it was not that long ago, Graham, where the Liga title was decided by what happened in the Classico because it will be that tight between these two teams each season. But um, this could happen. A nine-point swing could potentially happen this season. Who knows? Crazy things have happened. Crazy things have happened this season, Graham, in fact. I would argue from the wild swing in Barcelona's fortunes, at the start of this season, have you ever seen a team go from absolute dumpster fire, they're going to go yeah. bust, this is this is a crazy disaster, we can't even sign players, to we're absolutely cruising and we score four goals in every single game and everything's fine, the dog with his coffee with fire flames <laughs> around him. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing what a 1.5 billion euro Goldman Sachs loan will do. Mm. <laughs> I suppose that's the correct answer, Graham, yeah. Um, but I mean, we've got to... We're going to attribute it to more than just um, some lovely Golden Sachs investment, aren't we? Because it is Mr. Chavi who has turned things around on the field, right? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Laporta, who is the, the, the Barcelona president, um, he's now been in charge for a year, which that, that year has flown by because I almost called him the new Barcelona club president there. He's not very <laughs> new. He's been there for 12 months now. But last summer, he said that um, Xavi wasn't ready to be Barcelona manager. He has since admitted he was probably wrong about that, even though it's still early days for Xavi as Barcelona manager. But um, he had a he had a plan from the moment he came in to Barcelona. He's moved through that through that plan much quicker than I think anyone envisaged, including myself. So his, the first part of that plan was to bring the kind of possession. Uh, based approach back to Barcelona they had lost that under Komen there was a number of games in the first half of the season where Barcelona were dominated on the ball which is just is unheard of for, for in the modern age certainly for that Barcelona team so that that was the first stage get the control of the ball back he he found that but then uh, the, the the knock-on effect of that was Barcelona were blunted as a as a as an attacking force so as I say they were struggling for goals in those first few games he recognized he needed a winger to stretch the pitch and create more space centrally so he goes out and get Adama, uh, gets Adama Traore Ferran Torres arrives from Man City who can play in that position as well he puts a lot of effort into getting Usman Dembele on side and Dembele is finally performing for Barcelona on a consistent basis. It's taken him about four years to do so, but he's brilliant at the moment and was brilliant in the classical as well. And um, then he adds Aubameyang, which was which was a little bit of... He, he kind of fell into that solution because I don't think they'd planned to sign Aubameyang, but just adding someone who knows where the goal is, who has those instinctive... Uh, uh, finish that instinctive finishing touch in in the penalty box has just kind of rounded out this this Barcelona team and they kind of look like uh, at the moment a, a kind of a bit of a complete team because defensively they're very good with Ronald Araujo they've got threat in the fullback areas control in midfield creativity through the likes of Pedri and Gavi and they've got energy through Ferran Torres and goals from Aubameyang and width from Dembele and Traore they they look really good at the moment and and Xavi deserves a huge amount of credit and it's maybe a reminder that. In football, generally, 
people catastrophize things a lot of the time. On, on the pitch, I'm talking about Barcelona's situation off the pitch was a bit of a catastrophe, a genuine one. But people kind of forget that with the right coach and just a few signings, there, there's not many teams that can't be fixed with those sort of solutions. And Barcelona were in a real state around about Christmas and, and Xavi has come in and completely turned them turned them around. Um, so, yes, excellent job by him so far. Well done. Gold tick for you, Xavi. Uh, I'm going to pull up one more thread on this question, Graham. Um, let's say Xavi came in when he did um, in November. I think, I think it was early November when he actually came in. Would Barcelona be in a better or worse position if Lionel Messi had played this whole season with Barcelona? Given what we've seen of him in PSG, given what we've seen of what currently Xavi is doing with this team, would he be an advantage to this side? Um, I'm still going to say yes, because I feel like it's sacrilege not to say yes. <laughs> but I do, I do, I, I do accept that um, it would be, it would be there'd be some difficulties fitting Messi into this team. I'm not entirely sure where he where he plays in this in this Xavi team. Maybe on the maybe on the left side there, but I don't think that is a particularly good fit because obviously uh, Xavi wants width on the right side, and that's not something that Messi provides. So I think the the weird thing about Messi is when he moved to PSG, it felt like to me he was he was thinking of coming back to Barcelona at one time uh, in the future, maybe once that two-year contract at PSG finishes. I, I do wonder now if Barcelona will, will see the benefits of having moved on from him. They've gone through a very, very quick transition um, from lo- losing Messi. Think about how long it took them to transition out of losing Neymar, and it's taken them about six months to, to transition out of losing Messi. Mm. And so they've done the hard bit. Messi's, what, 34 now? He's 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 aging, he's into the twilight of his career. Barcelona have done the thing that people said, when Barcelona lose Messi, the drop-off is going to be significant. And it was, but it was only for six months. They're now out of the other side. So I do wonder if Messi comes back and says go and sign me, guys, go and let me live in Barcelona again. Maybe Barcelona don't do that. Maybe it's beneficial for them to say, look, we've already moved on from you, Leo. Um, so that's a, that's an interesting scenario, I think. Yeah. Sorry, Leo, you're an Apple Music guy. We're a Spotify family now. Maybe that's how they, <laughs> they play it. Uh, thank you very much, Gar, for that question. Uh, we've got a couple more on the docket here, Graham. Diego Lara uh, asks... What is the best fantasy soccer app or website that you guys play? Uh, Diogo says he personally likes MLS Fantasy, uh, Sorare, and FPL. Uh, and if you like fantasy, what is the biggest mistake or best moment you've had? Um, Graham, I will say I'm going to take you back to ancient times when I first started playing fantasy, which was okay. in the Times newspaper. Back in the old oh, analog wow. days, in the late 90s, with my dad, we would pick a team from literally columns and columns of names in the Times newspaper. You made your picks. And then my dad, with all like his work friends and like me and my brother, set up a league. It was a spreadsheet, manually entering all the scores that were then subsequently published in the newspaper after the weekend. That's how it used to be, Graham. That's how it used to be. So that this is where there is a generational divide between you and I, because I <laughs> I never did that, and I'm struggling to get my head around how that even works. So do you send do you send anything away? No, it's so how how did that work? So you you just do your own table they, with, after the scores are published. I believe they had a mail in version of it, um, but also you could just use their stats and set up your own spreadsheets. Basically, is how it was. And this is when, like, not everyone even had, like, Excel for a spreadsheet as well. So it was uh, crazy times, crazy times. But um, if I'm going to talk more modern, Graham, I think 
for me, it's the FPL site that I enjoy the most, mm-hmm. and specifically the draft version of the game, which I've been playing the last few years, which I yeah. think is a much harder skill. If you've got like 10 people in your league, or 10 or 12 or whatever, you realise after round one, ah, all the strikers have gone. Because the actual depth chart of Premier League strikers isn't that deep. If you want someone who's going to play every week when you know many teams only play one striker, if you want someone who's going to be reliable every week, it's really, really difficult to play. So that's uh, that's why I kind of like the draft version. Yeah, especially when they put players like Salah down as a midfielder. Right. And I think Aubameyang was down as a midfielder when he was at Arsenal as well, which doesn't help the depth in the attacking positions. Yeah, you've got to find, you've got to find those sneaky mischaracterizations or mis, 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 uh, appropriations of player positions as well, definitely. That's part of it, Graham. Uh, and the other two I would mention that I like to play are the DraftKings and FanDuel's, um, the daily fantasy stuff, which I've done a little bit. I don't do it at the moment, but I have done. Particularly, I think the DraftKings game is pretty good, and it's uh, that's decent fun as well. Um, so that's me, Graham. How about you? Yeah, so I, I'm a I'm a pretty big fantasy nut. I, I play uh, loads of fantasy football games. I own my own fantasy platform as well. Um, and I think FPL is the quintessential fantasy game, as, as you say there. It's, it's kind of like... It's kind of like FIFA, the video game, I think, FPL, in that it it established the form in the digital age, at least for the mainstream. And um, so they kind of, they created that base scoring system of you get points for goals and assists and clean sheets and that sort of thing. And I think FPL popularized, popular, can't say that, made mainstream (laughs) uh, a lot of what we know to be uh, certain in fantasy. Now, the other one I I like playing is slightly left field. So I like playing the Alsk Venskan Fantasy, which is the the Swedish league. You do? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know all that much about the players, but it runs over the summer. And so that that kind of gives me the my fantasy hit when there's nothing else on in, in European soccer. It's really popular amongst like the the fantasy community. If if anyone reads like fantasy uh, FF Scout, like fantasyfootballscout.com, there's lots and lots of Swedish league fantasy stuff in there. So yeah, I play that one over the summer. Uh, so rare, <laughs> as mentioned in the question, I find that interesting, and I've played that I uh, played around with that a bit. The only thing I'd say is because it's based on NFTs don't treat it as an investment i think a lot of people do that so, Graham, and I, I i've not heard of this one i think i pronounced it sorare which is probably wrong so rare what is what is that about yeah so so rare is like a global fantasy game but it's it's like you buy cards so you there is a bit of money involved and basically those cards are nfts for anyone who doesn't know what an nft is that's a non-fungible token uh that is a bit of a fad at the moment and uh, on on the internet on the old internet basically you are you are buying like the the rights to something unique um you're actually buying the link to the card rather than the card itself if you want to get really boring about it but yeah it's it's all based on nfts and so that's what yeah as i say don't treat it as an investment because i think that's probably going to end badly anyone who saw what happened with football index will will know mm. what, uh, how that how that ended up so if you treat it as a game i think that be, can be pretty fun so surreal seems to be getting uh, quite quite big at the moment so yeah those those are the three uh, my brother used to work for fangio as well so i'm pretty familiar with uh, how the fangio stuff works as well there ryan and I've, I've dabbled in that as well can you if you're willing graham can you tell us a bit about the fantasy app that you you have as well yeah, so I uh, I run Fantasy Football Scotland. Um, up until two seasons ago, there wasn't a Scottish fantasy football, which seemed like a, an oversight. 
to me so my, my brother and I we created a Scottish fantasy we're in our, we're just coming to the end of our, our second season now we have uh, I think 80,000 total users um, wow. and we do blo- a lot of blog content and we have some sponsors and stuff like that so yeah, that is. We we do have some plans for expansion, but I won't talk about uh, that. Otherwise, Taylor will charge me for an advert. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that that's that's what I run. Fair enough. That's great, Graham. And uh, I'm 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 amazed by this Alsvenskan summer league thing that you're doing. That's that shows your addiction level. But um, I yeah. can't help but thinking, if only there was another league that ran through the summer that you were also close to that you could uh, do fantasy for. Hmm. Yeah, no, I've never really, for reasons I can't quite explain, I've just, I've not really, I've picked a team with the MLS one at the start of the season, and I I don't know whether it's because it happens at the same time as the as the Premier League, and maybe it just falls off off, off the end of my, my interest a little bit, but yeah, I'll need to, I've kind of missed the boat again this season, but next year I'll need to do have a proper go of the of uh, MLS Fantasy, and maybe there can be a TSS MLS Fantasy League or something like that um, next year. Excellent. Oh, Sounds like a date to me, Graham. I'm game for that. All right, Diego, thank you very much for that question. One last cue for this episode from Robert Cordova, our friend in Los Angeles. Hello, Robert. In honour of the US Open Cup returning, hurrah, uh, what does TSS think about uh, which domestic cup competition has the best-looking trophy? I'm going to come out and throw throw some fire here, Graham, and say the US Open Cup itself isn't a great trophy. To me, that looks like a golf trophy. It looks like um, if the FA Cup and the Ryder Cup had a baby, that's what it would look like to me. Yeah, so that's the that's the Lamar Hunt Correct. trophy, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It kind of looks a little bit like the um, the FL trophy, the old First Division trophy a, a little, little bit. bit. It's, it's, it's kind of got that, that similar look, Big but golf. it is better than the original MLS trophy, the MLS Cup trophy do you remember we looked at that a few weeks ago yeah and it was like something you would get from in the uk we have shops called the the trophy shop or the trophy store yeah if you are an amateur team you go down there and you pick up your trophies for the end of year awards it genuinely looked like one of those trophies that would cost about 40 pounds (laughs) it was dreadful and in terms of the best ones graham i've got a few nominees Uh, i think actually the current mls cup the philip f anschutz trophy is pretty good you know classic shape some gold trim on it. The handles have got a bit of a modern touch. Do you like the current MLS Cup trophy? Yes. Yeah, yeah very, very much so. It's actually kind of a, a weird hybrid between, for me, it looks a little bit like the Champions League trophy, but kind of uh, merged with the Scottish Premiership trophy, which is slightly more modern. The, the Premiership trophy in Scotland has like modern handles and things like that. So it's mm. it's kind of like if those two trophies had a baby, they would have uh, the MLS trophy. Actually, I was gonna I was gonna say the Scottish Premier, Premiership trophy is one of my favourites as well. I think I like that big classic design, like the European Cup, the Champions League trophy, but with slightly smaller ears, isn't it? It's a bit more understated. Yeah, I think that's my favourite kind, the giant urn style um, trophy, and the Scottish Premiership trophy is a good one for sure. Yeah, it is. It's literally one of the best things about Scottish football. <laughs> there's not, oh boy. there's not all that many good things, but we do have a good trophy. It's kind of it's it's modern without being too modern. There's still kind of like a classic look to it. It's it's like the Premier League trophy without the. I always think the Premier League trophy. I don't like the gold crown on the top of it. It yeah. feels a little bit tacky. Yeah. So I, I prefer the Scottish Premiership trophy. That's fair. Yeah, and I think the 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 crown on the Premier League trophy hasn't aged well. I think we can say no. that's fair. Um, what about the World Cup? The actual, the current World Cup trophy. That's a great design, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's that's that is the classic. It's a bit weird, doesn't it? Because there's no other trophy that that really looks like that. No, but it's 
it's uh, yeah, it's a classic trophy. I I went down the the route of in the question it says domestic cup competition, so I took that very very oh, literally. I misread the so question. So I have I've gone down the route of the Copa del Rey, which I've I've always liked the Copa del Rey trophy. I like uh, trophies as we've established with the Scottish Premiership trophy and and the MLS trophy. I like trophies with big oversized handles, and it's it's got those, but they're kind of angular and 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 slightly different. And I, I think it's a very classic design. What's a big a big kind of goblet, but with angular handles and a wooden base as well. So it's, it kind of um, it bridges the gap between modern um, and uh, classic. Isn't, so I've always liked that trophy. I'm conflating in my mind the La Liga trophy. Isn't that kind of like that as well? The big angular yeah. handles as, and like it's a massive goblet with like bumps on it. It is. It is pretty similar. Mm-hmm. I have to say, both both of them are are pretty similar. There's not much variety there. Looking at league trophies, I've always liked the Serie A trophy, the Scudetto really? trophy. Which is like uh, upside down trumpet. It, it, <laughs> it does look a little bit. I was thinking more like the, like an Olympic torch, like you know, an Olympic flame. Uh, I like it. I like it. It's very very simplistic, but it, it, I, I like it a lot. The the weirdest one um, going along the lines of uh, the Luke Ailing, so so bad it's good. The weirdest one is the DFB Pokal trophy. I love this trophy, but not because it looks good. It looks like something out of Indiana Jones, a big gold goblet with jewels and all sorts on it. <laughs> it is nuts. Um, but I can imagine it would feel really medieval to, to drink wine or something out of that, that after, you, after you win it. That looks like um, if you were like a, a medieval jousting restaurant in Las Vegas, the trophy yeah. they give out to the winner, doesn't it? Yeah, it is, it is really, really tacky, but I, I, I kind of love it in a weird way. Yeah, definitely. And on the German subject, how do you feel about the Meisterschale, the league title um, plate, which is, um, they call it the Saladschussel, which means like the salad bowl. But I think yeah. it looks really cool because it's got this, it's got those jewels on it. It looks like it might be in like a Marvel movie, but it's also got this kind of Viking vibe going on. It's a bit like the Rosewater dish they give out at Wimbledon for the for the ladies singles champion as well. I kind of like it. Yeah, I I like it as well. What did what did you call it? There is that the traditional name for it, or the Meisterschaller is the, the the champions plate. Um, or, right, or they call okay. it the. Yeah, it's it's. Um, I have to say the the shield is is very risky to go for a, a form factor for a trophy because if you look to the Eredivisie one, it looks like a drinks tray, um, and yes. the Bundesliga one doesn't. So there's there's a there's a very very thin line there between something classy and regal looking like the Bundesliga one and then a drinks tray as the Eredivisie has. Netherlands one literally game looks like it, you'd serve whiskey on it at a fancy golf club and that's all it's good for. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, yeah. it's just, just exactly. an engraved silver tray. Boo on that. Boo on that. Um, oh, by the way, the Meisterschale, uh, my notes say it's got all the champions of Germany since 1903 engraved on it. But at its current size, Graham... Is that just Bayern? Yeah. No, well, it only has space for champions' names up until 2026. So do you think they're going to start just saying Bayern times 19, Bayern <laughs> times 20? Just... Yeah. Or, or, you know, when you do, like, tallies and you just do the, the, the mark. Yeah. Like... And then when you get to five, you cross over. <laughs> yeah, they're just going to do that. Like the cat in a prison term. That's right. All right. Um, any more for any more on trophies, Graham? No, I think we covered all the all the trophies, at least all the notable ones, all the ones that deserve a mention. We did indeed. We did indeed, Robert. I hope we did your question justice there. As indeed for all the questions, that just about rounds up our show today. Graham Ruthven, can't thank you enough, sir, for your contributions. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. 
And thank you, listener, for joining us on this intrepid journey. We'll be back with more listener questions next week. And there'll be another show on the feed very soon. But for now, bye. Yeah.